0: Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. Before we dive into the episode today, we wanted to highlight something to you. We were originally going to try to get this episode out last Friday, but we are publishing it today because it's been a really, really busy week. We were planning to publish today, Friday, December the 15th, a piece about a company called Brandfluence. Brandfluence is a middleman company, marketing company that would connect charities to influencers. And for the past two and a half years, another reporter, Hunter Cook and myself have been digging into the relationship between charities and influencers. We're gonna be publishing it today. And on Monday, I reached out for comment to Brandfluence's CEO, who did not respond to me. On Wednesday, I was contacted by an attorney representing Brandfluence who said that he had begun the process to file suit against me in Fulton County, Georgia, and demanding we do not publish our story. We are going to be publishing our story. You'll see it here in the near short term in the next few days. And the story has been and will be, before it is published, very legally vetted by one of the most prestigious First Amendment groups at one of the best journalism and law schools in America, I can't say a whole lot much more about this, given the fact that there is threatened litigation. However, you know, Brandfluence claimed that I conspired with three nonprofit industry leaders, one of them who runs a competitor to their company to defame them and create an advantage for that competitor. I think listeners to this podcast know I would not do such a thing, that allegation is false. But our reporting shows, and I wrote about this online, so if you wanna go look at it, you can. Our reporting shows that there in 2020 and 2021, Brandfluence, which was known as SoftGiving at the time, collected a significant percentage of donations raised for events by the influencers they worked with, according to public records and partnership paperwork that we've obtained. In several cases, less than half the money reportedly raised into these during these charity streams actually made its way to the actual charities. These things were laid out in paperwork between SoftGiving and the charities but notably prior to the beginning of our investigation which started in the summer of 2021 the company's donation pages did not contain a disclosure about what fees it collected or how it was compensating influencers we've also had a couple of influencers who went on the record for this piece saying that soft giving had misled them there's a lot to unpack here and i would say stay tuned for our reporting later in the next few days you know we are very strongly pro investigative journalism. We're very blessed to have people in our corner who are the same, including the first minute group at the aforementioned education institution that's working with us. And we are going to publish this story. It's very important to me that this story sees the light of day, not just because I put a lot of work into it, but I think it's very important for the public to understand what happened here. So if you believe in that mission, if you believe invest investigative journalism, You want to help us put a spotlight on various different things in gaming, the creator economy, and nerd culture, you can do that by subscribing to our Patreon. We always mention at the beginning of these episode intros, now you have a good example of why it's important. I can say from personal experience, even having worked at places like ESPN, in the event that this would happen at somewhere like ESPN, because I had other stories where I was threatened to be sued when I was at ESPN, they would likely be squelched. Wouldn't get the opportunity to publish these sort of things. I'm able to do that because I'm independent and because I have a lot of good people in my corner, lawyers and others who want to see this kind of work come out. So, if you wanna support that, sign up for our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. You can sign up. Membership start as low as $7 a month. They go up to $75 a month. There's a lot of different benefits, bonus podcast, bonus content, certain parts of pieces and pieces altogether that are paywall exclusive, we believe in independent investigative journalism in this space. We want to make more of it happen. So sign up for the Patreon. Now for about the episode. We were joined this week by Dan Fornacy. Dan is the lead dev and creator of Rivals of Aether. Rivals just announced that they are going to be putting out Rivals 2. Dan talks about the timeline in the episode. And they launched a Kickstarter, which very quickly became oversubscribed, meaning a lot more people paid for it than what they were looking for. It's super exciting for an indie dev like Dan. He has a lot of support from people in the Super Smash Brothers community in particular because Rivals is a game that is similar in Smash. They are both platform fighters. And he's not alone, actually. The devs that are behind the game Stormgate launched a... Kickstarter that very quickly became oversubscribed as well. Again, more money than they were even seeking, which is excellent to see that for independ- or independent developers. Those are the devs, Frost Giant Studios, they're subs to our stuff. Thank, thank you for them for supporting us. Frost Giant are really fantastic people uh, that I've gotten the opportunity to know. And they are ex-devs that worked on Starcraft 2, worked on Warcraft 3, Coming together to build a new RTS Stormgate that is inspired by StarCraft and iterating on that. So that's really cool. I'm really happy to see all this support for indie developers. We talked to Dan about what success means for being an indie developer. What the opportunity that he sees in the platform fighting game community. Given the fact that platform fighters have Super Smash Brothers, one of the most popular games in the world. But Nintendo, especially on the competitive side of things, the eSports side of things, is notoriously bad. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you'll know. Nintendo is notoriously bad at servicing it. And that presents a unique opportunity for someone like Rivals to step in. So, without further ado, we'll dive into the episode with Dan Farnese. Thanks, Dan, for coming on the show. And here is the interview with Dan Farnese. Dan, welcome to Visionaries. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a while since we very much, I think we very briefly met during a Genesis some years ago. And if I remember, I think, I think you got a little upset with me, which is fine. I was being highly critical. It's not Rivals' fault. It just is what it is. But I think you got a little upset because the, I was like tweeting something about the how Genesis was running late. And it was because like the Rivals competition was actually so close. And it like it and then Melee, I think, also ran like almost every game went to to Final Stock, Final Game. I think we were at that venue in Oakland until two in the morning. I I pretty much remember that night pretty pretty vividly. <laughs> but no water under the bridge, nonetheless. I'm glad to have you here because I personally enjoy Rivals of Aether and I'm excited for Rivals 2 and what you all are doing. For the people that may aren't maybe not aren't familiar with the game, have not played your initial iteration of the game and, and now are wondering about the sequel, which is why you're here to talk about it. Can you give people a little bit of understanding of what is Rivals of Aether and what is Rivals 2 going to be changing from the original game?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll give a quick intro to Rivals of Aether. So yeah, now it's starting to become a, an older a staple of kind of the indie game scene. It came out in early access in 2015 on Steam. Uh, we brought it to Xbox, that game preview at the time through ID at Xbox. Eventually, we brought it to Switch as well. So those are the three platforms you can play Rivals of Aether. And it is a platform fighting game that uh, we've started to see more in the genre. But for a while, it was dominated by, you know, Super Smash Brothers. So the core of, of what Rivals is really goes back to why I started it, which was I played Smash competitively. I played in college. The most popular game at the time was Super Smash Brothers Brawl. So there was a period in time where that was the most popular Smash game. I think a lot of people forget, you know, 2008, 9, 10. Before Melee really and, and PM took over. So I played that and then I graduated college. A, the documentary came out. A lot of people went back to Melee. I tried to get back into Melee and PM through the local scene in Seattle. Didn't really have much success. Melee was really hard to go to from Brawl. Brawl was a much <laughs> simplified game. And I said, hey, wow, wouldn't it be great if there was a game that was like Melee, but had some of these modernizations that was. I could play it. What if there was a game like Melee I could be good at? Yep. Uh, and that was the, the first thought. And that is kind of what led me down the path to creating Rivals of ETH there. And that's kind of still the path as we go into Rivals 2 as well.
0: You know, Prame, one of our producers who wrote a piece earlier in the week about sort of his concerns about Melee as an industry and as a scene, especially on the esports side of things. When I was editing that piece for him I was thinking a lot about how many people have taken a crack at the platform fighter genre and and largely have been unsuccessful right like we've seen Nickelodeon and their and a dev studio take a crack with their IP and Nickelodeon all-star brawl they just came out with all-star Brawl two but all-star Brawl one like kind of did the thing that a lot of games do where it had like pretty big player count right up front, but then like lost interest over sustained time and same goes for multiversus, I think is in that same category, really huge player spike right at the beginning and then struggled. You know, I, I was I remember like beta testing in a Vegas hotel room, the, the wave dash game that eventually became Rushdown Revolt. There have been many people that have taken a stab at this genre and many of them have not been able to find sustainability rivals to your credit though has had that community for a consistent period of time it feels like your are four to use kind of a, a like business term your four of players is pretty high much higher than i think a lot of the others even at like probably your lowest player count it's it's much better than the others what is what do you think both about the game and then also about the about the game and also about community is keeping it like people keeping people so routinely engaged in what you're doing
1: yeah i think um there's two areas that we kind of succeeded over time in that the first one goes back to even you know early access launch i think like you know back in the early days we would be around 100 players on steam average and you know kind of go up around tournaments and updates and then go back down and keeping those players engaged was obviously you know we had a game that was competitively minded. And we were also working with the community, right? Like That's a big area that we've been able to grow over time is like even things like ranked, right? If players are like, hey, this stage should be a starter, this should be a counter pick. We were just straight up going in the game and updating based on player responses, doing balance changes, adding new content. So that was able to kind of get us to sustain that really passionate core base that in Rivals 1 is honestly grown over the years you know it's still not like a super massive community compared to you know the other top esports but you know we still have you know 200 people show up to compete at a tournament like Genesis which for an indie yeah. game is kind of insane right like um i had been doing pitches for Rivals 2 over the last couple of years honestly since 2020 when we started the game we were looking at different ways of getting money and one of the things i would say over and over again is like for people to be willing to get on a plane to compete in an indie fighting game is kind of insane, right? There's been a couple, like yeah. Lethal League has tournaments. We even have them at um, SBS who runs the rivals, big rivals local will run Lethal League. But there isn't really a lot of games of that from this small of a creator that get people to fly and you know go on a plane. So even 200 people, you know, comparing it to something like Fortnite's massive event they did two years ago. It might not seem like a lot, but it is a lot, right? So we've managed to keep that audience engaged. But the real thing that has pushed Rivals 1 to be sustainable in the last four years now is when we added Steam Workshop support in 2019. That just, that blew up our floor. We went from, you know, yep. 100 on concurrent on Steam up to like the 400 that we have now. And we've maintained that, right? Like uh, right now the game's on sale. So I'm sure the numbers are going to be even higher for this week. But even when the sale's over, we drop, you know, three, four hundred. Ever since Steam Workshop. And we've just seen there that there's so much content for the non-competitive to dive into. And the player base is so creative in like what they've done. There's boss fights, there's a hundred versions of Ronald McDonald, there's all kinds of stuff. And it's it's really for us bridge that gap to compete against Smashes like items and fun modes and stamina. Cause like we don't have the resources to support competitive and that Steam Workshop has really allowed that for us. So it's something we're definitely targeting, you know, going forward, And I, not just Rivals 2, but as a studio, we're very aware of just how important modding can be for an indie game. But we also yep. feel like it has to be done right. Like in Rivals 1, we launched it with custom character support. So it wasn't like we just said like, hey, you can mod the game. Like, no, we had to do developing work to split the characters out and give people a way to, you know, make their own characters and make their own stages. So there's a lot of engineering work that goes into you know, supporting things like custom characters.
0: I'm curious too, and I'm glad we're talking today and not talking, look, this is a Wednesday for listeners. I'm glad we're talking today and not earlier in the week because uh, you are the second video game Kickstarter in the past couple of week or in the past week that has quickly exceeded its goals and what you're trying to raise. And I think that that's really unique. I mean, it's not particularly a new thing that games do this, but they're way more, just like any type of fundraising be it crowdsourcing or, you know, private investment, way more failures than there are successes. So there are to see you and to see the folks at Frost Giant with Stormgate kind of do the same thing and like over get over committed very quickly in a very short amount of time. I think that's really unique. Notably with yours, too, and we had a conversation with Matchambari, a dev who also runs an indie studio now, but previously worked at Blizzard and uh, Epic here a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about sort of how you attract audience more broadly to a game. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, like, the Apex Legends stuff and how, like, when they did their initial launch, millions of dollars in influencer campaign, et cetera, to, like, get people in the door. And eventually it fell off, eventually came back, right, like, through sort of organic community means. All that to say, I've seen a lot of people, big influencers, et cetera, who would, I would take a gander knowing them and knowing some of their rates, like, probably charge $5,000 an hour for just, like, a, a banner on a stream and these types of people are sharing the Rebels 2 Kickstarter probably out of no cost to your pocket. And I'm curious, one, how that makes you feel? And two, why you think there is like, even for the people who aren't actively playing as much, there is so much like goodwill and community support behind what you're doing?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question. And yeah, it's a good point of like, esports in general is so hard because you you honestly need that passionate base to even have to even have success. Like, obviously, I think If you can funnel money back into it after that that's great and that's what people love right like if you can you know have the pop bonuses pay you know pay streamers outside but to even to get off the like all that's going to be disingenuous if people don't like the game right so one of the reasons i think that we've been able to succeed is one we don't try to go over our means like we we've always had pretty small budget and even still you know compared to the big games now now that we we've had success on rivals so We're trying to put that back into development but when it comes to marketing we basically have zero dollar budget you know at this point especially because our development costs are so high that you know we're putting whatever money we have back into the studio but um i think what able allowed us to dodge a lot of mistakes is that we grew up through the smash bros community so we kind of came up grassroots i was attending tournaments in college as a player playing Brawl but then when I started attending the tournaments again in 2015 with Rivals I was bringing the game to the Smash events so I was bringing it to yep. Super Smash Con was one of the first big ones that we did. It was actually the first Super Smash Con as well. And we even had like the game wasn't very well known then, but I literally just brought a build with a new character that hadn't even been talked about and I was like, "Hey, what do you guys think of this character?" And we had always done those, you know, kind of like a lot cheaper than the ways other partners would come in. So, like, if Intel came to yep. a tournament, you know, obviously they want to sponsor. They're coming in with a lot of cash. We'd come in. Some, some, some people. You know, some people we've worked with would give us the same deck, and we'd look at the prices, and we're like, we can't afford any. Like, we, I was like, we can't afford your cheapest tier. And then sometimes that would end the conversation, right? But then they'd come back a week or two later, and they realize, like, hey, they do need content, or they, they are, they are close to smash, so they do want something. And we'd somehow managed to slip in, you know, kind of the back door and have a tournament or whatever. And we did that a lot, right? Like we were able to get to a lot of places with rivals by just kind of doing the same kind of grassroots style as Smash, where we worked with people who were doing it out of passion. You know, a lot of them were finding success. You know, I think Genesis is an amazing event, as you've mentioned that one. Uh, SmashCon, they do so awesome in terms of like, not just the stream, but I think that's one of the best ones to attend because it's both like a convention and a tournament. So we've kind of partnered with them. We saved money on that front. And that's how we're kind of continuing in Rivals 2. You know, we have people like Mango, people like Leffen who are really excited. And, you know, they might, you know, for other games, especially games outside of their expertise, you know, they're definitely influencers. But for us, they, we, we're kind of looking like, hey, if, you're, if you really want to play it, we'd love to partner with you and, you know, give you early access. And we're grateful that, they're excited right because the fact that they're excited is why they're willing to you know play it early give people a taste and honestly give us their feedback too yeah trevor on our team has been in a lot of the streams when he can and he's like taking notes we're talking in the chat about like hey should we be looking at this and that because we we're going to take all the feedback we can get right now
0: why did you decide to go the route of the Kickstarter versus some of everything else that you discussed, whether it be private financing or funding another dev studio that like dev publisher that wanted wanted to give you a grant or like partner and work on publishing it, et cetera. I think for first time devs, it's probably an easier answer, just getting a shot, but you you had a shot and you've done fairly well with your shot on, on Rivals 1. So I'm kind of curious why you decided to go that route in the end.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it's a good question. So we've been pitching, like I said, kind of since 2020 is when Rivals 2 development actually started. We had like a little bit of 3D model experimentation before then and even like teased it in one of our directs. But right when Rivals Definitive launches, is when we started. And then 2021 is when we started looking around because we kind of designed this game to be, to kind of fix some of our problems we had with development of like limitations that we felt like we had on rivals one. So like mm. one of the biggest ones we were like, Hey, we know if we want to build this game and we want to go, you know, cross platform with it and go big with it, then the online is going to have to be different. So we really looked at a game like Forhalla and we said, okay, what are they doing? How are they able to have this game on PC? That feels great. It's also on console. It's also on mobile. It's also on switch. They can all play against each other. Like, what's that going to take? And that kind of led us down the server route. We also saw like, hey, if you have servers, you can play ranked. If someone disconnects, you don't have to do what we do in Rivals where we're like, we don't know what happened. Uh, Punish both players. I don't know. That's what, you know, so like that was one of the choices early where we're like, okay, like if we think we want to grow this eventually, let's take some, you know, some risks. And with those risks, we knew like costs are going to be higher. So right away, we're like, hey, can we get a partner in? support us whether that was going to be investing in ether studios directly or you know publishing the game with us a long-term partner so we pitched to basically everyone that we could everyone that would uh, take an email from us you know a lot of like the big players you know in publishing and then also just a lot of different equity investment and i think one of one of the reasons we didn't end up with a deal you know coming into 2023 is Obviously, investment has gone through a little bit of a winter, especially right when we were heating up, talking to people It's right when we hit it. And also publishing, you know, we had some really interesting partners who were interested in the game, but it never really felt like it was quite aligned with like what we wanted to do competitively, right? Like yeah. if we want the game to be, you know, available multi-platform and we know where our fans are, things like that. So yeah, we were looking at it like, hey, our development costs keep going up rivals one keeps is still getting is getting older so as great as we've had in the base we have you know eventually everyone who likes the game on steam um you know it's it's going to be saturated so we said hey if we can do something like a kickstarter that could allow us to keep at least our current team we're looking to hire at least one or two more people you know based on the success of the kickstarter but with those funds we can kind of keep the current team intact we're not beholden to getting a deal just to get the game out the door and then we think, you know, if we can get the game out the door, that's the biggest thing. And we can do it well among our core fans. Then we can keep growing it from there. So we kind of ended up at Kickstarter because we were like, hey, we know we need money, but we might not need the big numbers that we were looking at when it came to, you know, investment in publishing.
0: Is there, I guess that it leads me to the question, too, about like revenues and sustainability, because I think that's the number one question that every developer and everyone in the gaming space is facing right now, right? Is we saw. We've had this discussion a few times on, on the show with, you know, other devs and other sort of executives that have to work on fundraising, et cetera, is that you're right. It is a hard time to raise investment. You know, we've talked pretty openly about like what that looks like for us as a media company. And we're we're a really small team, too. I think that it, it is so different than what the environment was four years ago, five years ago. Right. Where like you could there was so much stupid money, like you could just kind of pitch whatever you wanted to pitch and go and do. I hear you on like not, you know, the market being kind of crap the past couple of years. I'm kind of curious though, given how long Rivals Rivals One has been around and kind of the success that you've seen. I'm curious why not sooner? Why like why not look at doing that sooner when it when there was a higher market, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So I did the funny thing was I did actually shop it around, not like the studio or the IP, but I before we even started Rivals two. I approached some of the big players to be like, "Hey, we have rivals. It's really successful. Here's what we've done well. Here's what we here's what we want to do." Because some of the things in rivals, like even from the beginning, like the lack of shields and throws, a lot of that was just because we were small and we were doing a 2D game. So, like we we kind of always had the idea. At least I had the idea in my head that I wanted to go bigger and you know kind of compete more directly with Smash. So I shot. I looked around to be like, "Hey, before we even start it." Does anyone want to kind of partner with us? You know, at that point, whether that was mm-hmm. acquiring our small team at the time, one of the biggest reasons that was difficult was our team was all—it was me and Trevor, who uh, the uh, programming lead on Rivals too, and a lot of people working on Rivals, right? So it was—we had Alien, he's an amazing pixel artist that worked with us. We had a lot of pixel artists who had done backgrounds, but that was basically the whole team. So it was me and Trevor and a bunch of pixel artists and game maker programmers. So it'd be really hard to acquire that to go build a, you know, a game in whatever engine, like, let's say we were, you know, partnering with someone who came with, you know, their own, their own engine. And we're like, hey, we're, we'll learn it and we'll build a 3D game in your space. So that was kind of like a high risk of like that potential option. And then in terms of publishing the game, yeah, it was kind of hard when there was no game yet. So up until, you know, 2020, 2021, when we were actually developing Rivals 2, yeah, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity. And there also wasn't super amount of interest from us, you know, especially 2020 was our best year in terms of sales because we launched Definitive on the Switch. So at that point, you know, we had the money where we were like, okay, we can start this ambitious sequel. We know we're going to need money eventually, but we have enough right now to really kick off and say, yes, let's take a shot at a, a game. You know, like I said, looking at Brawlhalla. Fortunately, what we didn't anticipate was two years later where we would need the money would be, you know, like we said, the investment market has completely changed and everyone is a lot more nervous about, you know, getting into, especially something like indie games and then competitive games too, right? Like I remember when we first started pitching, just even saying the word esports was like causing people pain instead of positive because there have been a lot of people who, um, you know, had had bad experiences, especially on the investment, like the equity side. So we're like, it's part of our pitch. It's not something we can remove because we're competitive. That's what we do well. But it definitely, I could see, was impacting you know how some of our pitches were going.
0: How do you build a sustainable business as an indie developer? To you know, obviously, you're talking about a small team, so it's the overheads not totally egregious. I can't imagine. But how do, how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's a good question. I think one thing that got us pretty well to 2020, I think once we started getting ambitious, now you see, you know, why we're doing a Kickstarter and how, I mean, me personally struggling with like, how do I manage everything because our costs have gone up. But before then, a lot of it was just, we try, you try not to bite off more than you can chew. So Mm -hmm. up until that point, you know, like rivals of ether, we kind of knew what it was and we, we knew what players were going to like it. And we also knew where we have success, which is in North America with people who like competitive smash. And that was the audience we were catering to. So I think the biggest thing in an indie game is like, one, make sure you have an audience in mind, right? Whatever it is, it can be like, it can be niche, but make sure that there is a specific people and you have a rough idea of like where these people are and how to find them. And two is don't try to overextend right out the gate, right? So if you're making a game to satisfy your core niche, make sure you satisfy them at the beginning and you have that that passionate base and then you grow from there i think a lot of indie games especially people coming from AAA to then go indie it's really easy to say like oh well we'll look at this game you know like let's look we'll look at rocket league for example that's crazy successful and it is, has all these features for like an awesome e-sport that's both accessible but you know rocket league grew over time right at first they they had that the not not the novel idea, but you know that core of the cars playing soccer, and they were able to build upon that once they had people who like it. And that's kind of kind of what you have to do, I think, in the indie space is really grow it over time, or even do like sequels and things like that. It's really hard to knock it out of the park on your on your first your first launch day.
0: Well, I think too that probably changes the way that you think about. Like total addressable market, etc. You know, speaking from my own experience, we're we're in a position here at Overcome where like there is a certain amount of what I would consider like base users, right? And and the people that are like the hardcores, you, the ones that you kind of cater to the most, and we know the most. You know, I've had I have that as an individual personality and in media, etc. And then there's obviously the people you want to reach when you become sort of bigger, venture funded like that. I think you have to think very aggressively about what that bigger number is and like the go-to-market plan and how to get there, et cetera. It's a lot of work and requires a lot of experienced, very well people to help or well-paid people to help you too very often, which makes things a little bit t- tougher from a runaway perspective. I'm curious how you think about that growth though, because you have your core, you've identified your core, they've sustained you, right? Obviously you mentioned the Switch release. The Switch release is was a big moment for you guys in terms of increased player base, better sales, et cetera. But I think the constant question around games just generally is how to make, especially live service, a sustainable model without being predatory and everything else. Like there are a lot of other questions being a live service game that come in. And I think I'm wondering how you think about both the market size and how you make it sustainable with the market or with the base market and then the potential target market too.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. It's once again, yeah, it's a really good question. And honestly, it's something that we're both designing around and also terrifies me at the same time because one of the biggest things that stresses me out and is what keeps me up at night is really like the unknown that we're jumping from from rivals one to two so like multiple areas so one of the biggest ones as i mentioned is going peer to peer to server right so like our team like when we have lag in peer-to-peer rollback like we know what that's like we know hey like even our fans right you know if you've played slippy or you played rivals one you like can tell like, Hey, this person I play against always has a bad connection when you're on server. It's a little different, right? Cause it's really just you to the server and there's yeah. lots of things to sort out. So those, those scare me, but then in terms of sustaining a project, there's also other areas that we're jumping in rivals two that we're changing. So we're building our backend on PlayFab this time. Whereas in rivals one, it was all, we just used like steam or switch or whatever mm-hmm. platform we were on to do, you know, entitlements and things like that. So not just the tech of it but also like the design right like are people going to yeah. buy enough skins for us to not only maintain server costs but also make money over time right because if you're if you're buying the game at the beginning even if it's a paid game and then you're playing it for five years and you're one of our biggest fans like one do we have enough stuff that for you to keep getting that you feel like it's worthwhile and is, is it also priced in a way where it's not a negative. It's not like every time we put something out, you're mad at us. Those are all scary and things that, you know, we're going to have to be kind of have our, you know, our ear on the ground to, to do, but also at the same time, I think like you are going to have some people upset about prices. Cause if you don't, then that probably means you're pricing too low. Right. And you're not generating as much off of these, you know, continued for us, we're just looking at like cosmetics, right? Like we know we're a competitive game. So we're not, we're not planning to do anything that's like, what you would consider content kind of paid but mm-hmm. like making sure all our cosmetics are priced well and then yeah even for us i think a big one that we're looking at in terms of sustaining the project like is if we can if we can launch well and and get enough of a base where we're, we're generating money and we can get like another like workshop v2 whatever that looks like in a 3d game that's in unreal that has servers you know a lot more unknowns as well but if we can get to that i think that's a way you can kind of maintain for uh, a long time as well because the people who are passionate about competitive games there's a lot of overlap to the people who are compassionate about you know creating their own skins and characters and things like that and one of the advantages we have in that space is that we are a fully owned ip of an indie game and we have experience with steam workshop so we're not afraid to try modding, if we can do it in a way that works, you know, it's not like Multiversus or Nickelodeon or even Smash Brothers where you have a million IPs and they all have different contracts and things like that. Where it's like, once you start getting into modding, it's like, I imagine a logistical minefield to actually pull off. Mm-hmm. It's something that we know we want to get to and we think it could be big, but because we don't have a lot of engineers, we're taking a big risk in saying, Well, hey, let's get the game out and let's have competitive players who like it kind of advocate for it to get us to the point where we can then expand and,
0: you know, hopefully grow the casual base even more from there. We've seen that certain indie games, probably more in the past five years or the past, maybe a little bit longer than five, past eight years or so, indie games have really been able to define culture. And when I say that, I think of like Undertale and Sturdy Valley and some of these other titles that like you guys started with just a handful of people, maybe even just one person in some instances, and eventually become, you know, as relevant in a period of time as some of the biggest game titles in the world published by AAA publishers. I'm curious, what, how do you think an indie game can do that, can reach that cultural significance from like a marketing perspective and a word of mouth perspective What does it have to do? Do you think it's mostly luck or do you think that there is something more about the way that you make the game and talk about the game and share the game that is a part of that as well?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into it. I think like the biggest thing is honestly the approach as a product at the beginning. Because you mentioned before when you were talking about investors and kind of like it's really hard because for them, you know, growth is the most important thing. And like right away, if you have an investors in your studio and you're spinning up a new game, Like you're thinking about it day one. Whereas I think a lot of these indies are starting from, you know, what excited them? Like what, what part of games motivates them? I know when I was a kid growing up, like I was always tinkering in Game Maker. And I honestly, once I hit like 10, 11, 12, I would have trouble playing games because my brain would start like spinning off of like, oh, like you could take this mechanic and apply it to this. And I would try to go like put it in my Game Maker project I had at the time. So I think a lot of the the best, the top indies that you mentioned are like, whether it was a feeling they were inspired by. I think there's a lot of games like Night in the Woods and a lot of indie games where like they really capture either a time in, time in your life or even just like a, a feeling. And then there's also games that really capture like the core of a type of game, like Stardew Valley, looking at something like Harvest Moon. It's really funny to go back and try to play something like Harvest Moon because yeah. Starry Valley replaces it in your brain. You're like, "Hey, wait! It didn't have this feature, or it didn't have that." You you start to yeah, kind of get confused, and that's something that we saw a little bit as well. Like, especially now that I'm on Rivals two, it's funny when I try to go play either Rivals one or you know even the old Smash games. Like we have special moves in certain areas that Smash doesn't have, and it's like you feel like it's missing because you because we're we're kind of like a spiritual successor. But also expanding upon that niche. So I think even just the approach of like building building upon what excites you is really cool. And the indies that have done it well, they were able to like kind of get that at the launch, or they were able to something like Minecraft, where they were able to kind of eat, grow it but keep what's magic about the core. Like the, to me, the magic of Minecraft is like Legos, and like even if you play it today, yeah. that's still. You know, there's lots of stuff that's on top of it, but it still has, you know, that magical feeling.
0: What's really interesting, too, is I think that the we're in a really peculiar and kind of fascinating moment for all fighting games platform doesn't matter, right? Whether it doesn't matter if it's Smash, it doesn't matter if it's Street Fighter or Tekken or even Project L, you know, coming out in the next year, the... I hear a lot of talk from people all the time, and some of it, I think, is rooted in, in enthusiasm. People just really excited about the fighting game genre, and some of it, I think, is uh, rooted in data, right? And I had a couple of experiences like this a couple of summers ago. I taught a summer program a School of the New York Times. They have an affiliate school that basically takes over a portion of Columbia College and or Columbia University in New York. They bring in like ninth through 12th graders or rising t- 10th graders through uh, college freshmen to participate in this program. While I was also living in the city, I got the opportunity to go talk to middle schoolers as well who were, there was a a local school that was opening an esports program and they, one of the, the instructor asked if I could come by and like just meet every, talk to the kids and meet everybody. And in both experiences, both my own teaching and visiting them fighting games were such an important part of what they did you know my generation i think of the 25 26 27 28 year olds that are into competitive multiplayer games are into league in particular sometimes counter-strike kind of a little bit more like hardcore pc games per se that have you know very very rich histories as communities but i think this like these kids are probably now closer to like 17, 18, 19 years old and in college are a lot more centered around fighting games and things like Rocket League, etc. And because it's it's something now that plays a lot better for a lot of these games. You can play actually finally play online with your friends without having to like figure out how to use Slippy or anything else and and do a mod, right? Like it may sound easy to us. It's not so easy to other people. But the And so I think fighting games are in this like very peculiar position where they've always been a very good social activity among close friends, like sitting on a couch. But I think that because of net play and other things, they're also sort of catching a certain generation online that that they've not before. What do you think the future of fighting games looks like? Do you think there is a world where we are talking about, the genre more broadly and all of its different games in kind of the same like tier and breadth of things like League of Legends and Dota and Counter-Strike and where they're at as in the space right now?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And yeah, I've noticed it too among the high school crowd. The thing that I feel like is interesting compared to when I was first getting into fighting games is there is this more sense of kind of like respect and awe among fighting games and players than there used to be especially from like mobas and shooters. I think like at least when I first started getting into it, it was kind of just, you know, just another type of genre. And then like everyone, I, when I was at least in high school, it was like, regardless of what game you were into, you were kind of like considered a nerd. And it was like, they did, there wasn't like a discrepancy. It was like, oh, you're a nerd. You're probably good at Halo if you like smash. Right. And then they considered you're, you're good at all that. But I think nowadays, like there's, there's so many different games and it's a lot more, not just mainstream, but like, especially in high school, like it's a lot more accepted, right? Like I think most people not only play games, but a lot of, if you ask a lot of people, they probably play a competitive game, right? Like they each have a game of their choice. And I think fighting games are kind of viewed as like, like a deeper, more committed game in some respects, right? Because it's one V one, because there's so much, you know, kind of knowledge that goes into like, even to play street fighter, like obviously you can put on the modern controls, but there's like a lot of just systems and how the game works. I think there's like a lot more respect and like people not only are getting into fighting games but they're doing it in a way where it's coming in like a bit more positive right like they don't feel like they're gonna be ridiculed for like getting into it or anything like that which i think is really awesome right like i think it's so cool that if if you're good at street fighter for example like a kid in high school would be impressed they'd be like wow like you just like destroyed that guy so i think that's really exciting but i think then the games this year and next year are are pushing it to the next level just kind of the way they're improving like street fighter six had such an awesome launch the world tour is amazing you know the characters animation is still capcom level but you know all the features around it trying to getting people in obviously we saw their numbers at this evo so yeah just kind of like that's exciting and then um i think project l is another one where could totally blow up in terms of like getting a lot more people who haven't really invested into a fighting game to try it out not just the Riot IP but kind of Riot's design sensibilities and how they are able to mm-hmm. just make you know like even something like a MOBA going from Dota to to be as mainstream as League of Legends is you know Dota was so popular I mean I I played it when I was you know in Workout 3 but um, to imagine it getting as big as something like League is like kind of insane because the genre is not like the most accessible when it comes to, you know, comparing it to other games. So I think something like that could really blow up. And yeah, like I said, we've been doing pitches for a while and we've mentioned like, hey, I think we're going through a fighting game renaissance. And I think there there is excitement for all of these local events as well. I think something like Evo is in, is in a great position because the online is so good now that you're going to get competitors from all over the world just getting good at the game. And they're going to want to have these big events, you know, whether that's a couple, yeah. maybe that's one a year. Maybe it is just like everyone descends upon Evo. Maybe there's a couple, like there's three to four a year. I know, you know, Evo Japan and other events. But people are going to want to come out to these big events and really show off all the practice they've been doing themselves online. And I really want Rivals two to be a part of that. Right. Like our goal is like, hey, we want to be kind of the platform fighter part of this Renaissance, right? Like Project L, Street Fighter Six, VI, Tekken Eight, Rivals Two. Right. Like that's how we would love for it to play out obviously there's a lot of work you there's a lot of things you have to do right to be you know kind of part of that echelon but um that's like a goal for ourselves like we've even said if we if we're not at evo 2025 then then we messed up
0: (laughs) i'm curious what what you think about what's happening in smash the past year and especially from the perspective of someone who's creating a game that i think could very realistically fill its place from a, like, you know, I think Rivals rivals 1 demonstrated, and I'm sure Rivals 2 will as well, demonstrated that the unique understanding that you guys have of like the community, what they're wanting, et cetera, right? Like what's always so fascinating to me about the Smash community as someone who's been in it for a very long time, not, you know, as active as others because I'm reporting on other things, but as someone who knows a lot of those folks is that the, all it takes for the smash community to be slightly impressed is like Nintendo to pay just a little bit of attention. It is, you know, it's very much like a neglected child who like just finally gets like the one, that one valid compliment. Right. And it's, I, I we saw it with the, the partnership application for their, for their tournaments, the license application for the, for tournaments in smash that, you know, like all it took was a blog post for people to think that like Nintendo kind of cares. But it's been a hard year for Smash, the uh, hard 18 months for Smash. Be You know, the Panda Cup going away. Alan, Alan was on the show after that, and Aiden and Simon were on the show to talk about that as well and encourage people to go listen to those. The Smash World Tour, the same, same fate. Beyond the Summit, well, a very well-known organizer, you know, shut down and then eventually rolled up inside of off-brand, but to a much lesser extent with not as many, you know, resources as it was utilizing to do events so frequently. I'm curious about how you think about the competitive market in platform fighters and the opportunity there for something rivals to when you have like a such a small team that legitimately cares so deeply about about the space.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll speak to that for sure, because I think one one of the things like just even kind of my reaction to Nintendo over the years, I mean, this year, obviously a little different with, you know, kind of their their tournament rules and the licensing that they're doing. But one thing is now, so I just turned 34 this year, but when I started Rivals, it's like 25, 26. So even in that, you know, eight years, nine years now, if you like look at my Twitter, like just my reaction to things is a lot different. And one thing I've learned is like to kind of be more sympathetic, kind of every position. I remember before I went indie, I worked at Microsoft Game Studios and I was on the XBLA team. It was super awesome. I loved it. But one of the things I would like kind of frustrate me when I was there was kind of like, not the politics of building games, but just how big that company is and like how, you know, kind of how decisions are made. Right. Cause there's so many important decisions and not everyone has the information. And I was like, yeah, indie is so much better. Cause like, you know, it's the people working on it making decisions. So starting rivals, obviously for the first couple of years, like it is great in terms of that, but obviously there's more stuff you want to do. So you start expanding the team and very quickly I learned why things work the way they do in the game industry and how, why there has to be these people making decisions. Cause you can't have, you know, that person can't be doing all the programming and all the art cause there's not enough hours in the day. Right. So then I start, you start to see how, you know, procedures are set up, rules are set up, even at a team our size. Now we're up to 24 on rivals too. And that's, to me, that's massive because Rivals 1 was like five to eight for like all of its development after we had initial success. It originally just me and a composer started it too. So, um, yeah, even up to 20, like we, we, you kind of have to create, you know, some of those rules again, and I bring it up because it's something I'm seeing with the way I think about Nintendo too, as time has gone on, because at first, you know, when I first started getting in the scene, you know, I, I agree with the community. Like, it's like, Hey, like, why, why can't you, you know, throw a bone? and why can't you do this? But then I also see it how, just how successful they are in so many areas. Something like the Nintendo park that they've been doing, the movie, everything, like they're very particular and
0: controlled on their IP. The, the very, like, sorry to interrupt the very, like a thing I, I say to people in smash unpopular opinion, but I think like very under should be understood at least is like, Nintendo doesn't need Smash Esports. Like, Smash Esports does need Nintendo. And it it is, you know, probably the hardest core of Nintendo players of anything or people that play Smash, any of the titles, Melee and Ultimate in particular, though. But, you know, Nintendo is a billion-dollar company that, like, if Smash Esports went away tomorrow, it would not hurt their underlying sales. And I think, like, that's harsh and that makes me sad because I feel very passionately about the community. But, like, it's the God-honest truth, too, that, like, it's... Yeah, it's just like not super relevant to their core business, and especially Melee is the one that's had the hardest time, which is why I think it's interesting you guys tried to, I don't want to say emulate, but like are inspired by Melee and try to like replicate some of the core gameplay is the fact that Melee in particular literally is not even for sale anymore. Like you can't, they can't even move units on it, uh, right? Like so they've put even the small amount of resources they've put, they tend to put in in, in ultimate and not in Melee. for. A very particular business reason. Like it's sad, but it is kind of the nature of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even, yeah. So even like the business not lining up, it's also like the risk, right? From so the other side, they're like, okay. So they've analyzed like what's the gain. And if that's low, then it's also like, well, what's the risk of kind of getting involved? And they obviously over the years, you know, there's tons of people have talked through Smash and I don't need to bring it up, but also like we've seen it too, right? So like let's say, you know, we're a small indie game and there's a content creator who's like, I don't know, making something really cool. And they've been doing it themselves the question of like how involved you get even at a size of a small team it starts to it starts to matter right like are you hiring this person in to now be an editor for your team are they like the official videos of your new indie game are you just supporting them in certain ways are you just giving them a little bit of money but you're separating yourself then if something happens you know like obviously if you're just supporting them a little bit do they represent your company if they say things that are you know that you disagree with that you have to now step in and say something so even at a five person team you'd run into that just imagine being nintendo's size and thinking about that so yeah there's i know 100 there's people at nintendo america who love smash and they want to support you and they there's probably people who came into the company at nintendo america really wanted to support smash maybe even worked on that the entire time they were there and still we're not really able to get anything off the ground because there's just so many parts that they have to line up to do anything official. Yep. So I I understand why it happens. I'm not saying like it's good and I wish that they could and I wish they could do more, but like I think people give us a little too much credit when we are able to support because we're we're a small ship. You know, we can turn we don't have as big of risks, you know, when it comes to like supporting our competitive scene. And also we we I know a lot of the players like you know when we hire someone like Adam Cara or even like supporting Cake Assault, like I've been at events I've met them the people at Nintendo who have at the end of the day have to make these decisions you know they don't have they don't have the ability or the time to be you know at Genesis and at these tournaments so I just think yeah I think people need to give just to try to take everything a little more sympathetic. I think Twitter in general tends to be, everything has to be black and white and it's very much reactionary but whenever i see any news i first i'm these days i'm trying to look at it from like you know what what would be their perspective especially because yeah there's so much at the that these companies are doing all at once
0: yeah nobody likes to hear about corporate structure and slow down processes. And trust me, as someone who worked at the Walt Disney company and ESPN, I know it as well as everyone else. <laughs> so like it's just, it's just the unf- unfortunate matter of the truth. It's like to get anything done is very difficult when you have to work through so many approval processes. Not, not the least to say when Nintendo is a company that's split that is predominantly Japan and then has like somewhat out of the loop American, American leadership as well. So like it's, yep, yeah, I'm, I don't agree. And I think everybody that me and Prim both have said on this show don't agree with how they've handled many things. But I also like, I understand from a logical perspective why why we're at that point. So, yeah, that's where I'm at too. Like, that's how,
1: and it took me time to get there too. I think if you saw, if I was still 25 and I just started rivals, I'd probably be dunking on certain things too, right? Like, I'd be, you know, not net, like, not feeding into negativity, but responding that way. But I think over time, you know, we still try to plug when we can because it's like, Hey, like we, we're we are game, we want to be part of the discussion, but I don't I don't have like the desire or even I don't feel that way of like, hey, these people are out to get us. It's
0: more like there yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I don't think that they think about competitive Smash as much as competitive Smash thinks about them. I think that's probably the best way to end the, yeah. that line of thinking. <laughs> I am curious though, how you think about the opportunity for rivals to to sort of be in that that spot, right? Like again, because the bar is so low, right? The obviously Smash is an IP for what you said earlier, the fact there's so many different characters. Like there's a lot of other reasons it's very mass appealing. It's also, you know, the Switch is the most sold console in the world. Like it has more sales than PlayStation and Xbox, which is helping it Ultimate's calls in particular. But at the same time, I think at least in the esports scene, and and I think you and I both agree that fighting games will have kind of a little bit of a glow up over the next couple of years relative to competitive esports. I'm curious how you think about the opportunity and what you want to do to seize on that opportunity for rivals to be kind of it, it to be that spiritual successor, as you said earlier.
1: Yeah, I think for us, like we, we kind of design competitive foremost to the point where, you know, some of my anxiety around game development is like, are we going to have enough to build around this? Like, are we going to be able to attract, you know, non-competitive players as well so we can actually sustain this business or not so yeah a lot of our designs are based around trying to jump on that opportunity right and like be like hey not only is um the gameplay designed in a way where we feel like we can take like a lot of people were like why are you making these changes from rivals why are you making these changes from that this that and that one of the things that we looked at is like we as a studio play a lot of platform fighters so one of the if you if you get to try the game rivals 2 build and you know there's creators playing it now so you can watch on stream but also we will be at genesis one of the things i hope kind of feels is it it does feel like a combination of kind of like all like ultimate melee rivals we even have in in nickelodeon all-star brawl you can taunt in the air to go into knockdown and i thought that was hilarious but then also for us has gameplay implications because you can do a get up special so now you can make Mm. make give yourself an opportunity to do it but anyway yeah we're looking at all these games and we're trying to like kind of create like one game that can it's not gonna be the perfect game right like ultimate players might complain about this melee players might complain about this rivals players are gonna be like why are there ledges but there's something for everyone and we think like if you've competed in a platform for before we really think you could have fun competing so from a gameplay perspective we're jumping on it and then from a product's perspective we want to we want to build around competition right like we want to know like yeah there's going to be seasons like the online play is going to feed back into local this is something we've done with rivals we'd love to do skins and stuff around events so all of that stuff like we we've done that on rivals and we feel comfortable doing it again the biggest unknown is going to be will we be generating enough revenue to do it as big as we want right (laughs) like will we actually Mm -hmm. have the money to like you know go to these not only attend these tournaments but like make the skins do the promotion we want to do or are we going to be like hey the are we gonna have to prioritize you know like i mentioned something like workshop or other features where we think we can create a wider net that i don't know i don't know exactly how this game is going to land with the general gaming audience but i hope one thing i think that we can control is um how it lands with competitive and that's what we're hoping we do the best we can you know at least for the first launch which is you know just going to be pc initially
0: so what's next for Rivals 2? Uh, you have the Kickstarter, you're oversubscribed. Congratulations. I think when I looked earlier this morning, it's like 250k oversubscribed, which is awesome. I'm, I'm sure that's a, a very relieving. I know how stressful it can be to launch something like that Kickstarter, so congrats. But what is what is next for the game? What does the development timeline look like, publishing timeline, and what, what happens in between then and the actual release? Yeah,
1: yeah. So when we look at the Kickstarter, like literally every dollar that goes into it, I obviously we're, we're doing physical rewards. So we're taking money out. So all, not all of it is going to be coming to us. But I basically look at we we're about a year away from what we want for our launch. So like each set amount of money is like a salary for not only, you know, an existing person, but, uh, you know, there's two new hires at least we want to make. We need some more engineers. So that's the biggest reason we even did the Kickstarter is like, hey, we're, you know, at operation costs and we need to get people in. Yeah, that's where we're looking at. From the raising in terms of development, yeah, there's going to be a lot. 2024 is going to be. We want to make it as exciting as possible leading up to launch. I've joked in the past that the only thing a fighting game player likes more than a fighting game is an unreleased fighting game because it hasn't let them down yet. And we know, like, it's just kind of how fun that period is. You know, I think one of the, t- I think I'd forget what Tekken it was, but one Tekken was at Evo before it came out. And I remember at the time thinking that was kind of weird, but also it was like pretty exciting because you've played, if you played previous Tekken's, you can kind of have an idea and it's just like everyone's learning, you know, kind of together. So we're doing a pre-release event at this Genesis where there will be people who played before. Obviously, we're letting the content creators who have played in. And one of the reasons we feel we're not doing any, there's no money to enter. There's no pot bonus on it. So We're kind of shooting it like both a tournament and a showcase. So for people who haven't played yet, this is your chance to try it out and kind of see how it feels competitively. Mm -hmm. But then for people who have gotten to, you know, Mango has gotten hours on stream. I plan on entering and I've been playing it for two years. I'm probably not going to win, but you know, I hope to do well because I could just use knowledge check people. We're treating it like a showcase as well. And I want to do that as much as we can in 2024, because I think it's just really exciting to see how the game is evolving. So we're going to not only do like tournaments, but we'll have beta access as well. So all of our backers will be able to get in and try the game targeting Q2 for the first beta and then multiple betas, you know, I looking probably beta weekends like other games have done in the past, live service games, kind of leading all the way up to, yeah, Q4 launch. And then our goal is yep. to stick that landing and at that point, kind of splitting into two focuses. We'll have people who are focused on the ongoing competitive, keeping the game updated balanced tournaments, ranked, et cetera. And then there'll be people focused on expanding the game. So that would be like coming to consoles workshop, as I mentioned, um, some of the single player modes. So if you looked at our Kickstarter, we had these really high goals for some of these modes being there at launch. A lot of those features are already in development. They're just really early or at different stages. So the money was so we could hire people to just accelerate it, you know, obviously looking like we're not going to hit the most of those stretch goals so um those features may or may not be at launch i think some of them we're gonna have to look at the product all up you know from a high level and say hey if story Mode's not there if this isn't there then we probably need something for people to be able to play at least day one if they're not going to try to be you know an online killer or anything so we'll be analyzing it and try to squeeze as much as we can in but we also know that, hey, if we if we do the launch well, well, we'll be expanding it after. So as I mentioned, make sure we keep the core happy at launch and then add stuff for, to get more people in the door as the game gets
0: older. Well, congratulations on on the success of the Kickstarter so far. Where can people find you and Rivals2? Yeah. So the biggest
1: one is I'm still active on the website formerly known as Twitter. So at, at Danfernacy rivals we generally do at studios of ether is the ether studios account that's what we've been doing for a lot of rivals Two news so definitely give that a follow and then um yeah check out the kickstarter there's only there'll be a week left or so when it ends on december 15th so yeah definitely check that out and then yeah find us online our discord is super active as well um we try to we have a community team we try to be active so if you have any feedback send it my way and yeah we'll we love to hear from you
0: awesome well dan thank you very much for joining us on the show yeah thank you for having me that's all for our show if you enjoyed this episode of visionaries you can find more like it on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and while you're there, consider giving us a review. It really helps other people find the show. And if you want to support us directly at Overcome and you appreciate the work that we do, you can now join our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. We have a range of benefits for our patrons, including special episodes of Visionaries and access to the video version of Visionaries. This episode was produced by Chiscilia Chochetti. Our digital media intern is Beverly Perez. Special thanks to Prem Thodamkara and Sammy Daig for their help with this episode. We'll see you here next week on Visionaries.